This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. As students across Victoria nervously await the release of their ATAR results on Monday, there's a growing conversation around the importance and the emphasis that we place on ATAR results. Does it influence how we teach? Is there too much of a push to get a score that will simply get you into university rather than looking at career options and looking at the individual? Maybe this is something in your household that you're discussing, especially given that only a few days away, there is a person, a teenager in your household that has been waiting for a certain number. What happens if that certain number doesn't come through? Do we place too much importance on ATAR scores and not enough on career advice? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning, my name's Rochelle Hunt and we're looking at ATAR scores and the importance and the emphasis that we place on them, whether it be as an individual, a family or as a community. And maybe there's someone in your household at the moment that's a little bit grumpy, you know, that's a little bit edgy because Monday is going to mean so much to them. But should it mean that? that much. one three hundred triple two seven seven four. You can text as well, 0437-774-774. This message, it says, I always knew that I'd go to university. I worked hard. I got into what I wanted and have a job in a relationship to my history degree from Melbourne University. But guess what? I hate it and I should have done a trade and I kick myself every day for not even considering it. And joining you in the studio, Professor Adam Shoemaker, who is the Vice-Chancellor of Victoria University, and Meredith Hunt, who's a former law student who didn't actually get the ATAR score that she wanted, but came a different way. She came through the VU Pathways and now is successfully working in the Office of Public Prosecution as a Legal Support Officer. A warm welcome to the two of you. Hello. Great Thank to be here. Adam, let's start with you. Of course, you know, you're the Vice-Chancellor of Victoria University, so you want people to go to university. So this is not an anti-university conversation. It's more about the pressure that we put on to young people to get a certain score or that you have to go to university straight out of school. I mean, you could, my husband, for example, went back and got a law degree in his mid-30s, you know, so we can go to university at any time. There's a place for ATAR, but is there too much emphasis on it, do you believe? Look, it's a top question, but the timing question is it. As you pointed out in, the, in relation to your, your partner, so many people come at different ages, and the idea that you peak in your sort of academic life at the age of 17 is just not true to lived experience of people. And if you look at it, actually, in the whole country and take all the offers of all the institutions that are called universities around Australia, about 60% now of those offers are non-ATAR. And that includes, you know, mature age, direct, later on. And don't forget, to be called mature age, you only have to be about two years older and living away from home and on Centrelink benefits. You know what I mean? So mature age doesn't mean aged. It just means slightly older. Has that something that you've noticed changed within your lifetime and your career? 100%. It's changed a lot. Well, don't forget, the system was really tiny when I started. I mean, compared to now, it's amassed, you know, great, you know, numbers now and reputation. It's fantastic. We love universities, but it's a far different world. Before, it was a, a small filter for a small number of people, many of whom were just deciding between different professions. And now it's what does the nation need? 
What skills are needed? You know, 24,000 electricians will be needed in the next three years. Where's it going to come from? It's that sort of, we've turned the whole rhetoric around. So people are seeing the big picture, not just the one picture. And it's also, it becomes a socioeconomics conversation. It becomes something where, and I think one of the good things, if we can find one of the good things that came out of uh, COVID and the multiple lockdowns that we all lived through during the pandemic, is we started to realise the importance of some jobs and some skills that previously we may be, or not everyone, but some people thought, well, they're not really that important, doesn't really take a lot of skills, so you, you didn't go to university to get that job. Yet that conversation changed, I think. I think the status things change. You know, like the peer review of, of what we call parity of esteem between, say, TAFE and higher ed, that's on the agenda now. People are saying, isn't it the skill that matters? Isn't it the outcome, the thinking to get that outcome that's crucial? So I'll just, you know, give you an example. If you think of cybersecurity, which is everywhere, every, and be here as well, you know, in the ABC, is that a, a very intensive short course? Is it a certificate? Is it a diploma? Is it a full degree? Or is it all of the above, depending on the need and the time and maybe industry-based? So it's much more of a continuum now. It's not just one thing. Especially given that a lot of the jobs that young people will be working into the future may not even exist as we speak. And this is a conversation for teachers and parents as well. There's a message here from Vicky who's in Black Rock and she says, oh, this conversation is as old as time. I was having this with my mother over 30 years ago and now I've had them with my children. It's up to the parents to make sure that the kids choose what they really like. This topic just comes up in the media every year. What role do the parents play? And a little later we'll speak with someone to give parents some advice and tips on how to do this. But is that easier said than done? If society, the media, the school is pushing high ATAR scores, then parents are going to think that high ATAR score, scores are important too. And it isn't just that the parents are crucial when they are. I mean, everyone loves to talk about these things in the family. But in the end, as you say, I think you give that example on the way in, people sometimes make mistakes. And occasionally that's because of parental influence, not always. It could be peer, I think peer influence, excuse me, <clears throat> is often very significant as well. But whatever it is, if you choose, you have to have some flexibility around it. So we need a system where people can afford and afford literally, economically, and to make choices, but to do so directly in something which for them has a goal that they can really believe in and that society needs to Parents don't always know that because it's a new new form of, of profession. It is. They we're, haven't been there. Well, <laughs> we are learning every day. Professor Adam Shoemaker, the Vice Chancellor of Victoria University, is with you. We'll have a chat to Meredith in just a moment. Let's have a chat to Helen, who's in Barwon Heads. Good morning. Good morning. What did you want to say? Yeah, I'm a careers counsellor and I've worked for many years in schools and I'm now in TAFE. And one of the things that we continually have to tell um, students and parents is that, no, your HR is not everything. The emphasis of careers counselling within schools, I had a long chat with an ex-principal off-air about today's topic and she would like to see more resources and more emphasis put on careers counselling and not a score. Absolutely. You know, most schools have got someone for a few hours a week, maybe 20 hours a week, but, you know, they might have, you know, a couple of thousand students, so... Um, there's there's just not enough resources in the system, so even for the parents to talk to someone about their children. What does good career advice sound and look like, Helen, do you think? 
it takes it back to the basics of what your interests are and how they relate to jobs rather than I want to go to uni or I want to do TAFE or, you know, I want to do an apprenticeship. But what are your interests and then what are the matching jobs? So it's kind of working backwards and taking away that expectation of what you should do. Helen, great to hear from you. Thank you. This, Rish, I did an undergraduate law in 1992, Masters of Law in 2004, and now at 52, I'm doing a Masters of Teaching. I'm finally ready. I'm getting, for the first time, HDs for the very first time, and I'm loving my teaching placements. That's from Stephanie. So what emphasis do you put on to the ATAR score, whether it be at your school or within your household? And maybe you've got someone in your home this weekend waiting for Monday to open that up, to open up the laptop or whatever it may be, and to see what their ATAR score is. Do we place too much importance on it? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning, my name's Rochelle Hunt. We're talking ATAR scores and if we put too much emphasis on them. This is from Pete. It says, Rish, my youngest daughter, now 25, never even bothered to open her ATAR score. She probably did well, but she said her score didn't define her. She's working in her chosen profession in a well-paying job. But, P.S., it's killing her mother and myself not knowing that score. <laughs> That's from Pete. <laughs> Professor Adam Shoemaker is with you, the Vice-Chancellor of Victoria University. And a warm welcome to Meredith Hunt, who is a former law student. Now, Meredith, you didn't get the ATAR score that you wanted, but no, you found yeah. a different way. You've gone through the VU's pathways. And where are you now working? Yes, yeah, so I'm working at the Office of Public Prosecutions. I am, um, uh, yeah, you're right. I didn't get the right ATAR that I wanted. Um, obviously, law is quite a high ATAR, um, but it was something that I wanted to do from a very young age. Um, so I took the kind of back entrance and I went and did an advanced diploma first, which then gave me guaranteed entry into the uh, double degree that I chose to do. Um, and that was the only prerequisite into the uh, law degree. And it was a year and a half certificate, uh, sorry, diploma. So I completely agree, you know, you shouldn't let an ATAR define you because if you've got a real passion for something, you'll get there. What was that moment like, though, on the Monday morning or whatever oh it was? Yeah, It was surreal. I remember sitting on my bed and I had my laptop and I opened it up and I was just waiting for my result to come through. And when I saw the result, my heart sank. Mm. Um, my parents were there with me and I've been really lucky. I've got really supportive parents. And they said, you know, as long as you tried your, your best throughout year 12, that's all that matters. And it's the same now. As long as I try my best, that's all that that's all that you can do, you know. And I think that's something that a lot of parents need to keep in mind, that their kids are trying their best um, and... You just need to like support them. Were they as nervous as you? Do you think? Because as parents, yeah, we're they constantly were. learning. I mean, none of us really know what we're doing as parents. We're trying our best as yeah. well, right? My parents were very nervous. Yeah. I think because we came over here from the UK, um, and I'm the first to actually go to university and get a degree. Um, so I think no that pressure. The, no, I know, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> but um, yeah, they were definitely nervous, especially because you know they didn't really understand the whole system, the whole ATAR system, and how it works, and you know different study scores and all of that. And I still. <laughs> I've got to get up to speed, right? Yeah. I was about to say before when you opened the envelope or, you know, when you yeah. opened the paper to mm. get your ATAR score and then realised just how far behind I am. Do people understand the ATAR? Oh, look, no. I think that uh, most people think it's an absolute score defining your quality mm. in life. It's just 
one indicator and it's a rank against the total number of people who have sat that particular series of tests and so forth in that year. So it's not an absolute, it's not actually, it's, it's like a representation of quality, but it isn't quality. And also, you know, can be used for filtering numbers into a course. That's really what it's about. Yeah. And given now that we we live in an AI world, so job applications, for example, won't actually be scanned in the first instance by a human most of the time. They'll be scanned by some kind of bot. And when we're talking about numbers and ATAR scores and placements and whatnot, how much human interaction is there in actually understanding the Meredith mm. behind that score and how much mm. of it is going to be AI in the future? Look, it's a great question. I'll try and answer it in a sideways way because yep. maybe give an example. So this is on behalf, when I was at Monash University and, you know, it's a great university, has a wonderful number of programs and medicine was in very high demand. And you would assume that a 99.95 ATAR was the way to get into medicine and in the olden days, it was. But at the time I was at Monash, people looked at the evidence and said, if you need EQ, if you need to be able to speak with potential, you know, patients in the future, you need more than an academic score, as wonderful as that quality of mind would be. And extra things were included, aptitude tests, mm-hmm. interviews, group work dynamics, of course, because, all I mean, this imagine stuff. Imagine if you're working, you end up working in as an oncologist. Yeah. You know, you need to communicate if you're mm. working in oncology, for example. Yeah. So when I'm, I will get to the AI one, but it's almost the human factor here is predominant. So, yes, it's kind of like a necessary but not sufficient thing. Okay. And if you look at a different way, in, in case of your example, did you know this, that in most states in Australia, the prior completion of a TAFE diploma is just as strong a predictor of tertiary success as a high ATAR score. And people don't know it. How mm. do we get that out? Well, like today. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's just rumor mill is that there's only one pathway. It isn't true. I'm never going to dis, to use that technical term, the ATAR completely, because like I used to work and chair the Victorian Curriculum and Assessment Authority. It's got lots to like. It has a role. That's it right. We're not saying it doesn't you know, have a place. It has a role. It has a role. But to give the, the mental health impacts of so-called failure at that moment, you know, the mm-hmm. fact that you felt, you know, downcast, that's what yeah. we have to really address. There's more than 10% of people right now who are graduating year 12 unscored ATAR. That's for various good reasons. It doesn't mean they're inferior people, nor that they could be absolute stars in the future. Bill's in Hampton. Morning, Bill. Yeah, good morning. Um, The point I was trying to make was um, I've got three children. They're all gone past their VCs and stuff now, but with my first one, I wanted him to make the, um, the VCE be about what he could show himself he could do, regardless of the score he got, it was his opportunity to see what he could do if he applied himself, regardless of whether or not he went a trade course or a uni course. How did you go about feeling like you had the knowledge to talk to your kids, to advise your kids, Bill? Because it can be Uh, tense. Yeah, yeah, I I didn't. I I come from a trade background. I didn't finish um, school. I've got my own business now. And I just... And I, I, I just wanted, I wanted to take some pressure off him yeah. with regards yeah, to what he can do, yeah. and I just wanted to turn him and make it, make it his challenge to see what you could do. Because regardless of whether, or not, in my opinion, regardless of whether or not he was going to uni or going to get a trade job, if you went to a trade job and you had a good score, the chances are that you might beat somebody else that might be similar to you, but they had a lousy score. And Bill, it's the way people want to read yeah. what they do, but. I think the ATAR is a good 
is a good indicator of how, and it can be a personal indicator of how somebody can apply themselves and they can look at it and if they've had a great school career and they go lousy or they've had a, a, um, a poor school year and they go well, they can turn around and say, well, I tried and this is where I got up to. Here's where I'm going to move on to from here. Oh, Bill, great advice. Mm. What a great dad you are. There's a message here, one of the many, right? This is from Craig in West Footscray and it says, listening to this, I want to change my career to become a career counsellor. I'm 54. Where Go do I it. start? <laughs> Did you get a lot of careers counselling, Meredith, um, in those last couple of years of secondary school? I had some. Um, I had some careers counselling. Um, but like one of the callers said earlier, it's, you know, under-resourced. We had one lady. Um, she would come in every Wednesday and you had to uh, book an appointment with her prior too um and she would uh, there's like 200 girls i guess i went to an old girl school 200 girls that are trying to chat with this one person um it was just yeah it wasn't really the best way to kind of go about it but yeah and you knew what you wanted to do i did you? yeah but I, did most of your friends and peers because i mean lots of them didn't know what to do of some of them still don't know now i mean 24 and i've got other friends that are 24 and they're still figuring out you know mm. i had lots of friends that um, really applied themselves in year 12 and got in the 90s. Um, they went on to do, you know, biomedicine, went on to do really, really intelligent stuff. Um, and then after a year, they were like, nah, I want to go into childcare. Mm. So it, it just goes to show that this number really doesn't mean anything. You know, and how many times in our lives we change jobs? I don't know about you, Adam, but how many different jobs have you had in your career oh, in your least, lifetime? At least a dozen, and uh, and that's not even the unpaid ones. I mean, you know, just the paid ones, right? And I remember really well. I grew up in Canada, and my parents said to me at about the age of you know eleven. If you want to go to university, no, we can't afford to support you. This so is the you, other conversation so you, we haven't had you know, yet. Haven't, yes, so I thought I'd sort of throw this in. They said, you better get a paper route and start delivering because in four or five years' time, you're going to need to pay for something yeah. if, if you choose to go, right? So there's also that affordability question. But then at the time, I was really quite sort of lazy. And uh, I'm confessing on air this, but I actually repeated year 12. I mean, I did well enough. Uh, academically, yeah. but I was really quite young and I was emotionally quite immature. So I ended up doing... Were you happy about that? Was that your choice? It was my choice. Wow. Yeah. And I did a whole series of extra subjects, which I never have forgotten now. Like it was actually things like I'd done the normal mathematics and then I did a subject in the second year 12, which was practical applications of mathematics, you know, sort of income tax applications and banking and finance, all these See, things. See, that's important. Yeah. Like that's so, so important and that should be taught in schools, but it's not. It, well, I think it, you can, but people think of it as lesser. I mean, math is, math is really important to have. And I, I'd really lament the fact that we're, we're losing pace on STEM and mathematics in this country. But part of it is because people don't relate it to their everyday lives enough. Yeah. You know, It says I, a lot yeah. about character, though, to yeah. choose to go back and do year yeah. 12. A very dear friend of mine dropped out of school in year 9. Hmm. Lots was going on in her family. She went and got a great job and was working. But then when she was 19, she said... I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to go back and get year 11, year 12. Mm -hmm. And, of course, because it was her choice is what she wanted to do. Ducks, ducks, ducks. Yeah. Successful, incredible, leads an incredible life now. But the sense of character that it takes to say, I'm going to go back and do something that other people will have opinions on. Yep. Mm. Yeah, and people always do. But you know what? I think, Meredith, what you said too, I bet some of your friends have opinions about everything and people do. Sometimes you have to chart your own course with that support and just be confident enough to do it. Do you yeah. think that's right? 
Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up. There's lots of students, like we were talking about mature age students earlier on, and there's a lot of students that I uh, was studying with in the last few years of my degree, and they had had totally different careers before they went back to studying. Um, You know, some of them were in teaching, some of them were in IT, and they said, you know, I really just want to go back to school and show myself it's not necessarily a 12 but go back and learn something and show myself that I can do it and they all did really well and you know I did honors with them so and what a great experience for you as well so that peer-to-peer that you're getting is different and you've got people that have led totally different lives Michelle's in Caroline Springs morning Michelle good morning I just wanted to make two points um the APART score really makes me um angry that we it's coming out soon and because it's so irrelevant and if I was in charge of education I'd totally scrap it. Um, when I was at school it was HSC and I barely passed. I wasn't interested in university so off I went and I did lots of different jobs, travel, um, hospitality, uh, worked in a hospital um, and just grew as a person, travelled overseas. When I was in my early 30s that's when I realized what I really wanted to do and that was to become a paramedic I went back they didn't even ask me what my score was because it was irrelevant and I achieved and now I've been a paramedic for over 20 years and it's right can we say thank you for that by the way (laughs) no worries it's been an absolute it's an absolute pleasure but the thing is I wanted to do it then and I had the maturity to go ahead and do well Mm. whereas when I was 17 or 18 I wasn't interested, so I'm, I really feel for the people that get their numbers because you are more than a number. And may I just say, I once spoke to a neurologist who told me that uh, an adult brain does not finish maturing until 25 years old. Mm. And so the fact that we expect these 17 or 18-year-olds to make a decision on what do you want to be is just ridiculous. It's like saying go and choose a life partner at 17 or 18. Yeah. You yeah. need... Well, sometimes they work though, right? And sometimes they don't. And I'm interested, and I sort of, I guess with you, Adam, I want to push back a little bit. I Mm. know Michelle, Mm. I mean, she's a paramedic of 20 years. So as a society, we can't thank her enough and be Mm. grateful enough for the work that she does. But Michelle called ATAR irrelevant. And I think, you know, we've been talking about whether or not it's important, but Bruce is in Eltham and he says if we downgrade the importance of ATAR, what percentage of students will actually be demotivated and not learn? Mm. The ATAR isn't irrelevant. It's needed. Is it just looking at the value and the importance that we put on it? But surely it's still warranted. Look, you, you need to have, I think, a system, you know, that's fair and equitable, but it's not uh, alone. I would describe it as you need to look at it as ATAR plus. What else is there? You know, what are the other elements of aptitude? And we talked about skills before, but skills that include things like pattern recognition, being able to focus, being able to really distill knowledge. And I'll just give you a really practical example. Most of the time in year 11 and 12, when people do essays, and you remember those famous essays, they'd be of a certain length. And of course... I dis- did mine without a computer. Well, that's right. Some people even <laughs> used to, some people used to hand, <laughs> handwrite them in the olden days, right? But either way, no matter the mode, it was a certain form of thinking. But did one person ever get asked, not just to write a 2,000-word essay, write a 200-word abstract, which really... You know, elucidates, mm. distills the knowledge. Elevator pitch. You know, the thing that you would use if you were doing a brief for someone in a ministerial office in politics or any sort of profession, 
that's more like the skill and often it's often we don't do it and so in at vu in the in the block model you know the model that you're familiar with we do those sorts of skills as well because it's not just essay writing that you're going to get asked to do in an office job it will be i need a brief and i need it tomorrow you'll never get asked to write an essay yeah it just doesn't happen much you know yeah no i mean all of the skills that i've learned throughout my degrees i've been able to apply into my job you know and i've got this job through that Mm. Les says, I heard an interesting comment from a university academic recently, and they said that they consider an ATAR an index of educational privilege. Mm. So how much of a good ATAR score, I mean, it almost takes you back to the movie, you know, Dead Poets Society, whether or not you're learning to love poetry or you're learning in order to get into university and impress your peers and those who have gone before you. So does this become a private versus public conversation? Does this become a conversation around socioeconomics when it comes to an ATAR score? It, look, that's a that's a big question, and it's you a can, whole other conversation. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. <laughs> you can do the numbers and prove a number of things depending on the evidence. But I'll give you some facts. Okay, so if you look at Victoria University, we've got about fifty three percent of our students are the first, as like you were, in their family ever to study at the tertiary level. What, okay, what was that? Fifty three percent. Okay, great. Now that I didn't the, know that. the outcomes, success outcomes are ninety percent from that. Okay, which is comparable to any of the great universities in this country, and there are many, okay? So what I'm saying is we call this start well, finish brilliantly. So this mm-hmm. is the, the big problem is there's too much focus with the ATAR system and its equivalents overseas on just getting in. You know, the getting in part becomes the, the aim for everything, but it's actually doing really well, acculturating to the course and thriving in it and second and third year and beyond. And as you said, you know, initially, not everyone finishes, right? But the more people who can... That's tax effective for them. It's not wasting their time and money. To really have that support is crucial. So it is the human factors, the method, not just the model. Meredith Hunt is with you, a former law student who didn't get the HR score she wanted, but now is successfully working in the Office of Public Prosecution as a legal support officer, found her way through the VU, the Victoria University Pathways Model. And Professor Adam Shoemaker is with you as well, the Vice-Chancellor of Victoria University. Kevin's call is in Sunbury. Morning, Kevin. Good morning, and uh, thank you for having me on on the program. Um, I used to actually work at a school. I was a teacher and was a head of secondary and a principal. And I can recall many times where you'd have these conversations. There would be an enormous amount of angst around students. And one of the challenges that I actually found when having conversations around parents is um, is to is to one for them to slow down and to just work with the student to their point of readiness because eventually they will get there and I think that's something that we need to continue to promote within our schools and actually enable them to see that when they get to the end of that their schooling life that they actually it's not the end of the world and that if we just work with them they will get there eventually and so the system in some ways uh, works against them in that regard. And so that's just the first point. The, the, the second piece here with um, uh, with Vika, and I've worked extensively with them, particularly in you know, getting schools accredited, uh, is that the curriculum managers really emphasise the need to develop cognition skills. So that's the things like describe, explain, analyse, justify. And so we make an assumption that they can do all of those things. But the reality is, is that you actually have to com- have the conversations as to how to have those things and I think if we actually place more emphasis around that I think at the end of the day we're going to end up with a better graduate and the university is going to be able to receive them and work from that point um, mm. as they transition into uh, into higher ed. 
Good to hear from you, Kevin. Thank you. On the flip side, this message says ATAR is important. My child obtained a perfect ATAR score and hence won a scholarship to university. We have a low to medium income and uni just would have been a struggle financially. Mm. So this conversation is different for every family and you might need a high ATAR to get to university because university is not as affordable or as accessible as it was decades ago. So, so true and, and congratulations to that person and, and you know to the family as well. That's fantastic. No one would ever criticise that and that's quite the reverse. But what we're talking about isn't just affordability, it's also support that leads to the best contribution every individual can make okay and i think that that individual obviously will but i'd put it this way the system in terms of equity really needs to be looked at too okay now that person was from a low ses background or uh, descriptively mm. and certainly at in our university 34 percent of the students are from such backgrounds okay so it isn't as if you only can get in with a 99 extra ATAR and do well at the end. I really think that's fantastic and it's superb, but there's lots of other people who need different, you know, different methods and different timing. Hence, how you do it, not just when you do it, but both coming together. And maybe we should just describe a little more what the difference in the model is. Because the VU Block model was designed by my predecessors in about 2016, 2017. Most universities in the country have semester-length study which is like about 12 weeks, 13 weeks, and then lots of exams at the end of that in sequence, often very close to each other. That is a time when many people do colloquially crash and burn. Yes. Okay? Now, this flipped model completely is to have one subject at a time, just one for four weeks. You just do one quite intensively for you know two or three days a week intensively. You finish a week off and start the next with 10 potential starts a year. Now, what we found is when people can do one thing at a, at a time and really focus and have the support, and they can also work, by the way, because they know when, that really improves their outcomes both academically, mm. personally, and even in terms of their wellness. Like this latest survey show that they really, really respond now, I was going to use that term, well, but you know, superbly, <laughs> to that support because it is a group-based dynamic. It's a bit like a master class with 30 people in it as opposed to an enormous lecture. It's right? interesting, isn't it, when we take some of the models that we've used for so long and you throw a lens over it of how can we do that differently. So do we place too much importance on the ATAR score? Maybe you think it's vital. And where does career advice come into this? On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning, my name's Rochelle Hunt. We're talking ATAR scores. Monday is a big day for a lot of families. In the studio with you, Professor Adam Shoemaker, the Vice-Chancellor of Victoria University, and Meredith Hunt, who's now working as a Public Prosecution Legal Support Officer, who found her way a different way, and that was through the VU Pathways. So, well, someone who's been listening along to this, and I dare say has been nodding along as well, is Adam Voigt. He's the founder and CEO of Real Schools. Adam, a warm welcome back to the conversation hour. Are we giving enough career advice to our young people, do you think? Uh, morning, Michelle. Thanks very much for having me in the conversation. It has been fascinating to listen to perspectives, and you're right, I've been nodding my head. <laughs> uh, and, um, and, and I also have done some work this year with, for instance, the Careers Advisors Association in New South Wales, and they're having these conversations as well. It's kind of how, about, how can they be in the, in the space of not just convincing kids of a, a really strong community narrative out there, that is that your ATAR will tell you what the next pathway is going to be for you, but how they could sort of put themselves in a position where they're pointing kids at the 
pathway of what do you want? You know, what do you what do you kind of think you want at the moment? And with a, with full permission to change their mind about that in the future, but how could we help you get there? Now, for some kids, like the one we just mentioned a moment ago, who came from a low socioeconomic family, got a scholarship as a result of a, a particularly high ATAR, we might place further importance on the ATAR for that kid to get to that pathway. But that kind of sliding scale of how important the ATAR is for you varies from, from young person to young person. And careers advisors are looking to try and help them understand where should that be for you. This conversation that we're having, how much of that is having is happening outside, that's happening within the educational sector, the university sector, the high school sector? Like, is it actually occurring or are we sort of just at the beginnings of this, do you think? I think the, the conversation is occurring, but it's almost like it's happening. It's almost like the conversation's happening in the corner of a crowded pub. There's a lot of other, there's a lot of other noise that's happening around them, and young people are landing in year twelve, going, "Okay, what ATAR do I need?" And that's not necessarily the conversation that they need to have. And as a result, you know, careers advisors, but also year twelve coordinators, and really anyone who's teaching these young people is kind of trying to help them understand that one that narrative that the ATAR really matters and that your ATAR doesn't matter isn't true. You know, that that you can make it matter as much as you need it to along this trip. But there's also this piece that because the ATAR is still, you know, a high stakes environment for a lot of kids, for a lot of young people doing year 12, it's kind of helping young people to understand that if they really do want a great ATAR, the most important thing they can do across year 12 is care for their own state, care for the, care for the condition they're in, not necessarily cram. Mm. Met a, a fab teacher recently a year 12 teacher who tells her students that they need to be rock stars, which means that, you know, um, Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters doesn't go on stage rehearsing his lines just before he goes in. He, he just makes it look effortlessly <laughs> easy, right? He has a couple of beers and says, right, I'm going to put myself in a state where I'm going to perform. So um, we want him to, you know, let them know that if they want to perform, then care for your state, care for yourself across the year 12 trip. I wonder how much of this has changed as well, Adam, given that we've seen a huge rise of really successful uh, tradespeople as well, you mm. know, young men and women making big amounts of money, starting their own businesses, leading quite affluent lives almost very early on. So all of a sudden a job that was looked down upon or seen as something that you did if you couldn't, couldn't get into university now, more and more people are going, well, actually, hang on a second, maybe we've got this mm. all roundabout. Mm. It's, yeah. Look, it's true. And I was really interested in hearing what you just said, because the truth of the matter, in my view, is ATAR is like one of the auditions for the musical of life, okay? But you don't always get in the show, the very first audition. And there are many other opportunities for really great shows. So I'll just give you an example. There's a, th you know, a million Australians living overseas right now. Many of them have teenage children. And a lot of them are in things like the armed forces or foreign affairs or doing aid work and so on. A lot of them have really disrupted environments. And one of those students I actually worked with in my previous university did not get an ATAR, mm. couldn't even qualify one for one, now has a Ramsey scholarship to the University of British Columbia, one of the most prestigious awards after your undergraduate degree ever. And the same thing's happening at VU and the same thing is happening at SCU and all these universities. So what I'm saying, it isn't just the one-shot deal. We're not saying negative. We're not saying ATAR bad. We're just saying ATAR insufficient.
Just finally, Adam, you're saying you're working with Careers Councillor uh, Victoria, I think you, that the, the group oh, was New called. New South Wales, actually. Yeah. Uh, New South Wales, yeah. apologies. Yeah. Do we have, I'm trying to remember, I think my drama teacher might have also on the weekends mm. been the career advisor at my school. I don't even think we had a career advisor. Is that something that needs to be ramped up within schools and access to a career advisor in all forms of school, no matter whether you're public or private, whether you're at a school of 200 or a school of 2,000? Yeah, it's definitely a distinction between New South Wales and Victoria and that New South Wales have made the decision that every school, particularly you know, high schools of any significant number, have a careers advisor. But like with most policy decisions, it matters less that they have that decision and more about how they do it. Uh, one, of the, one of the traps that's happened, in a, particularly in, a, in an environment in schools where there's a teacher shortage, is that sometimes the least capable person ends up enrolled by careers advice and that's not necessarily helpful for young people it also means that sometimes these people make up the job on the go and what we really want to do is collectively help them to understand that their job is about pointing young people in the, in the direction of a preferred future and then helping them understand okay this is how an ATAR potentially of this score could help you is that something you want to aim for? Is that something that you want to have a go at and help them strategize to sort of feel the success along the way rather than feel the pressure? Yeah, really good advice. Adam, as always, thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Adam Voigt, the founder and CEO of Real Schools. This is from Sandy, who's in Melbourne. It says, ATAR, preparation just to get in. It reminds me of preparing to have the baby and not being ready for what actually happens when the baby arrives. And that's a really good analogy. You can prepare all you like, mm. but here's the thing. You got no idea what's about to happen. Do you ever feel prepared, Meredith? Do you think? Absolutely not. No way. <laughs> That's okay, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, like we've just—you've got so many different pathways. You don't need to. Honestly, I—I I feel like the whole discussion around ATARs is more based around people that are just not ready. They're just not ready, you know. And I wasn't ready. And that's why I needed to go and do my year and a half before I went into my degree. If I'd have gone straight in, if I'd have got my ATAR and gone straight into my degree, I would have dropped out because I wasn't ready and I needed that additional step to get ready. Mm. Imogen's in Warrantai. Yes. Oh, Imogen, we're going to get you to turn your radio down for us. Sure. Good on you. It's down. Good on you. What did you want to say? Oh, hi. Sorry. I'm on the radio. Yes, hi. I was you just are. Because I, <laughs> I, I have um, twin boys going into year 12 next year and I was around the careers. I wanted to know, we will talk a lot about TAFE going into university, but what about TAFE going into careers? And also, I was interested in talking a little more to careers in schools because there seems to be very little for them. What, and so what conversations is your school having with your boys and what conversations are you having with your boys? Yeah, well, I'm not having all that much at this stage because I'm not sure where to go. Mm. And so far as their school, they know they do the Morrisby assessment, but that's in year nine and they're in lockdown then. And do, you and know, that, do they know what they want to do, Imogen, or is that part of the problem? That's part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah, they're not sure. And so therefore applying themselves is difficult because they're not sure what, what their direction for. So that's yeah. an interesting part of that conversation. If there's, on one hand, we can say you're 16, you're 17, you shouldn't know. That doesn't. It's okay to not know. Mm. But then, Imogen, mm-hmm. if it doesn't give you a focus point, then yeah. that's tricky too. That's right, absolutely. And especially, I do like I wanted to celebrate everyone that's participated this year and that will continue to participate because I think it's difficult. The world's difficult at the moment for these kids. Um, so just participating in themselves is a 
big achievement in yeah. my opinion. I um, couldn't agree more. I remember a great yeah. saying when we were talking about there's no such thing as perfection. Just getting it done is better than perfect, you know. Yeah, just do it. Absolutely. Just give it a crack. Yeah, that's right. Well, so, Imogen, we wish you all the best. Hopefully today we'll come up with thank some you. Um, <laughs> ideas so that you and yeah. your boys can think about that. What, what do you yeah. think, Adam? Look, uh, Imogen, I, we haven't met you, but I, I absolutely believe that the advice they could get is there, and it really is in, in the jobs and skills area. Like, in other words, we should almost rename this area of future careers jobs and skills experts because, frankly, a lot of the hugely important employments of the future are in the skills area. We mentioned cybersecurity earlier, but think of, you know, electricians and electrotechnology and solar energy. If mm. you try to get a solar electrician, it's hard. You might wait, wait just weeks. And they're paid probably on average, according to SEEK, $40,000 a year more than traditional sparkies, as they're called. And not, not everybody knows that. But, but the SEEK data is really helpful. So that should be available for people. It's online. If you look at the SEEK website, you'll see it. What about something as daggy as work experience? We all kind of, I remember when we were told in year 10 or whatever it is, like, hey, you've got to get your applications in for work experience. None of us took it that seriously. I mean, is that a really good opportunity? The funny thing is, right, I ended up doing my work experience at the ABC bookshop <laughs> downstairs doing stock tech. I counted a lot of B1s and B2s <laughs> because I left it too late to actually get into the ABC that I ended up in the shop. But... Had I done that, well, look, I ended up here regardless, so maybe it doesn't matter where you are. But does work experience count? No, it doesn't. But I, should it? I mean, I, I guess a little bit. I mean, my work experience is completely different to what I'm doing now. My work experience was um, I, I went and shadowed a music therapist in palliative care. But that sounds cool. It was cool. It was it was definitely interesting, and it was, it was a big opportunity for me to be able to... Because that was something that I was looking at wanting to do mm. with my career, but... I guess. Did you discover, though, from that work experience that this that's not what you wanted to do? Absolutely. That, Palliative oh, care, especially. Oh, that's, yeah. That was something that I didn't want to pursue. But in terms of it contributing towards an ATAR, it, it has no contribution. In terms of work experience, a little bit, I guess. It's, I mean, I think it's two weeks. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, I can, hmm. yeah, two weeks, trust me, because I went on from counting B1s and B2s <laughs> to counting a something fort, else. A fortnight of that. <laughs> a fortnight <laughs> of that. <laughs> but I think actually, Meredith, you've, you've nailed this. That often in life, because there are so many choices, we're drowning in choice everywhere. It's good to be able to rule things out. Mm. Not just to rule them in. I so I think that's also a, a useful thing. And I mean, I had a similar thing too, where I, you know, at one stage I had something where we, we was involved in carpentry, you know, like woodwork as we called it in Canada at the time. <laughs> and I was like a dramatically bad failure at this. You know, I had many, I think the, the, mark, the report card said, Adam has had many valiant attempts. <laughs> you know, oh, all your, you know, but I'm, and I love, I love carpentry, but I'm not actually doing it. You know, mm. I, lo- I, I appreciate it. So sometimes you have to knock things out of your consideration set. And mm. I guess that's good too. Yeah. Claire Eaton is an author, a speaker and a youth coach. Claire, we've had lots of parents today. Some saying, here's the advice that I've given. But like our previous caller, some going, I don't even know what advice to give because my kids don't even know what they want to do yet. And that's okay too. Mm. Monday is a really big day for a lot of families, for a lot of parents, a lot of carers, a lot of grandparents, siblings, you name it. As a family unit, as a household unit, how do we navigate through a day that can be really tricky like ATAR results day? Mm. I think that probably the first point I would mention is to really be aware of what you're thinking about this or, or time in your life. It's very easy to catastrophize and cast a shadow of doubt over what this score might mean for your future. 
And one thing that I often say is a score that you get at 18 can't possibly determine your life pathway, whether it's job skills or career. It can't determine what you're going to do between the ages 18 and 65. No number can have that much power. But as young people... As you get older, hindsight is a wonderful thing, right? You're like, oh, you know what? Turns out mum was right. But at the time, you disagree wholeheartedly. You think Mm. that they don't understand you, that they don't understand the pressure that you're under. Just because we're saying this now, we're saying that because we've got decades of life under our belt, Claire. A 17-year-old is probably going to disagree with you wholeheartedly. Mm. And I, I, you know, I work with a lot of 17 and 18 year olds and I say to them, look, if you do really well by your standards, you have the absolute right to be thrilled, but you also have the right to feel absolutely devastated if you've fallen short of what was important to you. So we have to ride that way. We've got to lean into those emotions. Life is full of highs and lows. And often when we lean into an emotion really well, it gives us a little bit more clarity to come out the other side and think, okay, Plan A hasn't come to fruition, but what's plan B? So a term I use a lot is what's next step? What's going to be the next step? Because we know that ATAR does one job very well. It often sets you up for a very straightforward pathway, if we're thinking textbook here. Um, But there are a zillion other ways. So lead into those emotions and look next step once everything's settled a little bit. There's sort of how the young person prepares, but then there's how the parent or carer prepares for Monday as well because it's super stressful and we don't want to stuff up as parents. We don't want to say the wrong thing, Claire. We've been sort of trying to give uh, a lot of advice or at least discussions around this for young people. But for parents going to bed Sunday night, there's going to be a lot of 3 a.m. wake-ups and stressing out. Mm. What can they do to make take the pressure off themselves and the teen in their household? Mm. I think parents are pretty getting pretty good at this nowadays, actually. I think they're really coming at this with quite a level head that it's just a score and life will go on and we will make a plan. So that togetherness is a really important language to use, I think, in this situation. So waking up on that morning when those scores come through is to remind our children that this score is not a reflection of your IQ or your Mm. EQ. And you haven't even found, school is not even touching the surface of kids being able to find their passions and purpose in life. So I say keep things normal, ride the wave, and um, just be with your son or daughter as they ride the wave as well. And think of it as a team. We're all in this together. And maybe have something else planned for the day too, like I don't know, a game of laser tag or something. Go and do something fun. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Have something else that you can do on the day. Really good to hear from you, Claire. Thanks so much. Claire Eaton, who's an author, speaker and youth coach. You've got to have something else fun for the day, yeah? I don't remember what we did. All I remember was feeling so overwhelmed, but I feel like that's the best way to kind of go about it on Monday. You know, take your child out and go and do something fun that they're to enjoy. Mm. Kieran's in Reservoir. Hi, Kieran. Hi. Uh, so I was one of the few, one of the rarer people, I suppose. Um, I did know what I wanted to do in, in year 10. So mm-hmm. I, I had that direction and it helped give me something to work towards. And I ended up in that industry and I'm in that job now and all of that. With that in mind, I still feel like there's no one size fits all. And I think that's what's missing from this discussion is it's almost like in those later years of high school having options of 
how you choose to be assessed. So maybe if you know you're like, okay, I don't do well with testing, is there another option that it's like, okay, it's an interview start type thing. So then you you have something still to work towards, yeah. but it's to suit your needs and maybe what direction you want you might want to go in or what your strengths are. I love so that idea because I was hopeless at exams, absolutely yeah, hopeless. So was I. Is there a way? I mean, that's great in theory but can we choose how we're tested oh look it's it's uh, it's not easy just to have a, a choose your own adventure for everyone but the truth is you can do different ways of approaching it for example we mentioned the, the block model before in, in uni we're doing some trials of the block model in high school as well and trying to see you know if you've got a group you know, 25 students. And let's say the West of Melbourne, I mean, we're talking about an incredibly diverse situation where 30, 40, mm. sometimes 50% of people, English is not their first language. So to enhance that ability, you also have to do it, I think, in group-based ways. So the you're assessment. saying then in a high school, mm. secondary school mm. setting, rather than doing English, maths, history, whatever, over the course of a week, over four weeks, you would just do an intense history. Yeah, just on one, you know, and it's, it's a good trial to see and not... It doesn't work everywhere, but we can't just be satisfied with the status quo at a time when the world has changed so much. We've been through the biggest crisis in 100 years with the pandemic. Mental health issues from, you know, 18 to 24 year olds in particular are very high. There's a lot more we can do to get absolute excellent support for people so they can be their best. And believe me, we want them to. Do you think we've seen the real results of those who did, even year 10, so we always talk about year 11, year 12 students during the pandemic, but leading into the pandemic as well. Do you think we've seen the real ramifications of those students and the life, the school life that they led during those years? Sadly, it's still rolling through. And, and you know, one of our graduates, the CEO of Lifeline, and we were speaking, you know, the other the wow. other day, and, and we asked that question, right? We wanted to know, and Colin Siri is his name, and he said, look, truthfully, we had X number of calls per week. And when I say calls, I mean chat and other digital forms. It's technological as well. Now we have X plus 2,000 calls per week compared to the, the height of the pandemic. Oh. And they're mostly younger people, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's just one index of the need. So what we've done is we've actually put an entire Lifeline building on one of our campuses along next door to Aspect, which is Autism Spectrum, and Melbourne City Mission as a kind of clustering. Wow, that's interesting. You know, like, so then the public can come, the students can come, but also people who want to learn, you know, mental health nursing or occupational therapy or psychology, they get... You know, you talked about for work experience, this is like much deeper because you're doing the real thing. I love that idea, though. You know? I mean, we know when you put, even when it looks at trying to reduce the rate of homelessness, you need to, you need to, or drug abuse or alcohol uh, abuse, you need to have those wraparound services and you need to put it all under one roof to a certain degree. You need to make access easy. Mm-hmm. You need to take out the stigma and you need to make it uh, approachable for people. So 100%. why can't that be applied to learning? It can. And that's my view is you could have schools also. Hi, g'day. Also, that's Brian yeah, entering I the just studio. realized. Yeah. <laughs> you can have schools also on campuses. Just think, you know, the tech schools. We have two campuses with Don't schools. Don't get me on started them. on tech schools. There's another them. example. Oh, yeah. That's the next conversation hour. But what, totally. what I'm saying is there are examples where you can have triple sector, not just TAFE, not just university, but schools, and they can interact. And that is the way I believe a different model can come forward. And Ours is just one, but we think it's a good one. I love the idea of just different models so that the person 
can be seen as an individual and the results that they get reflect their individuality. Professor Adam Shoemaker, Vice-Chancellor of Victoria University, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you and to pick your brain a little bit. And Meredith Hunt, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. A little shake of the hand from the Vice-Chancellor there. We wish you all the best in your future as well. And here's the thing, you might end up changing jobs in 10 years' time. Who knows? Have yourself a wonderful weekend. My name's Rochelle Hunt. I'll be back with you on Monday. If you need some weekend listening, don't forget the Conversation Hour is a podcast. We've got so many different topics. If education is something you want to go into, we've looked into tech schools, we've looked into all sorts of topics. So go to the ABC Listen app, subscribe to the Conversation Hour podcast, and that way you'll always have an episode ready to go. I'll be back with you on Monday. On Monday, we'll look at preparing for the fire season. Have a safe and happy weekend. Chat soon.